Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, literature, and popular culture. Hello, everyone. Greetings. My name is Bruce Markison. This week, we are featuring what we're calling a vampire special. A bit later on, Tracy Asteria, my co-host, will join me to talk about the film, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. We're actually going to begin today's show with Michael McGovern. Michael is a playwright and an author. Uh, he has written the play uh, Vampire's Kiss and has recently written his first book, came out last year. It is called Blood Ending, a Vampire Novel. Michael, thank you for joining us on the Ghostly Gallery podcast. Welcome to the program. How are you? This is great. Thank you. I'm doing, doing very well. Glad to well, be here. We want to talk to you about how your interest in all things gothic and horror began. That's something we like to talk about with a lot of our guests. How did you first become interested, Michael, in gothic topics like vampires? Where do you trace this back to? I used to watch, um, there was a show in Pittsburgh called Chiller Theater, and it was a late night, Saturday night a movie show and I would watch up with my dad actually growing up and you know like a lot of kids saw all the universal movies etc cetera, etc cetera. but what really turned the tide for me is one day my dad took me to the movie theater and we saw Power of Dracula and Curse of Frankenstein the two Hammer films and this was the first time I saw horror films in color, kind of blazing color that they have. And boy, did that just dazzle the heck out of me. And um, then I, uh, I started reading as I got into uh, high school, you know, I read Dracula, the original Bram Stoker, and I read Frankenstein and the Invisible Man and all, and all of it just was just, you know, amazing to me. And Edgar Allan Poe, and uh, on and on, and that just, you know, that has stayed with me all my life. You know, from an artistic viewpoint, you know, it just has really shaped how I approach stories, and it just, uh, it's wonderful, those trappings of those Hammer films, you know, the castles, and the forests, and the old ends that they you know would frequent and the characters and the way they were dressed and the way they talked and just and it was all serious i mean there, it, there wasn't any campiness to it and that you know that made an impression on me too this this is a serious art form Michael, did you start to think at that point that, yeah, maybe I want to do something when I grow up and, and, and have a professional career, maybe I'd like to do something in this realm? Yeah, you know what, that actually came a bit later. Um, I got into college, I was a theater major, and I was very serious, you know, young man and young director and uh, that kind of like went away. I hadn't really, I mean, once in a while I would, you know, when a movie popped up, but, uh, you know, I went on and I uh, started writing some children's scripts 
some plays, scripts. And as I was writing them, I was, you know, seeing more darker elements to these. And I, you know, that kind of got those ideas flowing back into my head. And when I was, I'd spent about a year or more in New York when the whole performance art and performance poetry thing exploded. And I moved back to Pittsburgh and I started writing poems based on some of those, you know, very innocent, very good children's plays. But here I was started taking them a little darker and a little mm. darker, and a little, you know, and then it opened up a whole, you know, it opened all that up for me again. And then on video, the films started popping up. You know, you could get all those great films on video. And um, so I guess it's what, what do they call like a perfect storm of, of influences that came, kind of came back into my head again. Mm -hmm. and, let, me take it, let me take it a step back just for a uh, moment. You mentioned growing up in Pittsburgh, watching mm -hmm. Chiller Theater. So you mm -hmm. must have been a fan of mm -hmm. Chili Billy Cardill. Yes, Chili Billy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of a theatrical guy, I guess, in a sense, as all horror hosts are. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, he was fun to watch. Absolutely. Michael, tell us about Vampire's Kiss. This was a play that you wrote, I guess, a while back. Yeah. Um, uh, tell, us a little, tell us a little bit about it, uh, what, what the plot is, what the storyline is. Actually, it's uh, Carmilla's Kiss is the title. Carmilla's. Yeah, Carmilla's Kiss. Um, I wanted it to sound like a Hammer film. Um, and um, I had read Carmilla, uh, Sheridan Le Fanu's novel. And I want, I thought, well, you know, everybody does. There's a lot of Dracula and Frankenstein plays are based on, you know, plays based on it. So I took my shot at uh, Carmilla and I actually, I started writing it when I moved back to Pittsburgh from New York and uh, it, it went through a couple different, you know, first it was a costume piece and then it was uh, like a, a ritualistic, you know, all these like seven figures come together and do this and on and on i kept playing with it and then the final uh what's the word iteration the final the way it finally ended up was a uh a group of actors and their director go into this basement where they're rehearsing this play uh based on carmilla called carmilla's kiss and during the rehearsal, it just, it's just outrageous, you know, um, if you've ever been in the rehearsal process for a play, lots of things can happen, funny things, frustrating things. And this director's kind of trying to keep everybody focused on the story and uh, they keep acting up. And eventually at the very end of the play, we discovered that the one actress actually is a vampire and when it, as everyone is leaving 
the rehearsal space and the two of them are left and she attacks the actress and that's boom how the play ends and um i had it done a, a one-act version was done at the 13th street theater in new york hmm. and it was uh it got picked for the uh off off broadway one at play festival and i've had a couple productions here in pittsburgh uh very successful productions of it you indicated some strange things happened during the rehearsals can you give us some examples right yeah well strange in that like at one point you know the, the lights go out and no one can figure out you know, why that happened um and just the actors start behaving funny quote unquote um they you know they get into arguments and people who never argued before are arguing mm -hmm. and someone is saying i wonder maybe it's a space what's going on in the space and <laughs> there's a lot of jokes about vampires and then finally at the end the big joke is that the one character the least the what the quiet little mousy actress who's still new to everything turns out to be the vampire at the end as she uh, attacks the lead actress and uh, we go to blackout hmm. what were you thinking when this was going on you you know here you've written this this play that you're uh -huh. obviously proud of i'm sure you put a lot of effort into it and these actors are you know, not, I don't want to say they're ruining the situation, but they're making life more difficult than it has to be. You had to be a little bit worried, a little frustrated. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the, the, the story. I mean, the director character in the play is definitely stressed out, you know, watching uh, and having to correct the actors, but you know, it's that it's a play within a play. So it yes. has, you know, a couple, but it, it, it's for me, the playwright, I mean, I just, you know, watching actors bring my words to life is just, I can't even put a word on the, the, how, it, how it feels, the description of just seeing, you know, uh, the pages come to life in, in front of me like that. It's just always, I don't think it's a, it's a process. I don't think I will ever, ever, ever you know, tire of. Yeah. Well, that's great. Did you get much of a chance to talk during rehearsal or do you just kind of stay in the background? Um, the one production uh, that, that I had a, a director, I actually, the director, her and I were pretty good friends. So we had talked a lot and I was uh, in that particular production. I was actually in it. I played the director of the, Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And then um, the second bigger production I did, at, I directed the, the whole thing. And it was part of, I had a small theater company called the Edgar Allan Poe Theater. And I was doing adaptations of Poe and my own original, either dark comedies or horror pieces. 
so on that second production, I, I was also the director. So I had, you know, total control over what was going on. Nice. You mentioned Sheridan Lefanu. Let's talk about some of your other writing influences. And, and two of them are really at the top of the heap when it comes to great horror writers, horror novelists, Bram Stoker and Anne Rice. Right. Well, I was probably eighth grade when I read Dracula. You know, I, again, I'd seen you know, the black and white, you know, Lugosi, and I had seen, and I saw, I think I saw the two of those, those two Hammer films by then. And, you know, so I had, I'm not sure what was going through my head when I started reading, but it was, uh, it just uh, pulled me in that the, the whole, letter writing and correspondence and diary entries and things like that. I'd never read anything like that before. Mm -hmm. So that was really great. And, uh, and as a side tip at that time, then I read uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and having only known the, you know, the, the movie, the Karloff film, then I started reading it. I'm thinking, this isn't this isn't like the movie you know what, what is it but then again i just pulled me in and pulled me in and pulled me in interview with the vampire came to me when i was a senior in college a friend of mine who we were both into you know horror films and things like that and he said you've got to read this book this interview with the vampire book. He said, this is the most amazing thing I've ever read. So I picked up, I went to the, down to the, you know, little uh, five and dime, which were still around back then. And went through the bookshelves, found interview with the vampire paperback, which I actually still have. It's sitting over in my, my bookcase. Nice. And yeah, yeah, I've got it, you know, in a little plastic sleeve. And, um and wow that was another you know wow moment while reading i remember sitting up in my uh, dorm room you know up in the uh sitting in in, in bed and just you know page reading. Yeah. couldn't read fast enough so and then um eventually i got around to reading you know the next two i haven't read all of her stuff but i read you know, Vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned and a couple of the uh, Mayfair Witches mm. uh, books. Um, and then I kind of, The Mummy, I read. And then I kind of got away, you know. Stuff like this comes in waves with me. Um, but, uh, yeah, I she was a definite, you know, definite influence. And showing that there were, are more ways that you can uh, investigate vampire stories and more things you can do with them. Um, and I liked that. And I liked that the, you could, you know, yeah, they're, you know, they can be killed by, you know, wooden stake and, and stuff. But the daylight thing, you know, well, maybe they can come out like 
just as it's getting dark. You know, or maybe they could do this, or maybe they could do that. You know, and you start seeing other writers in other movies where they're playing with the vampire lore and what vampires are capable of doing. And uh, so that was, you know, that was great. I think probably, and I, I may be wrong on this, but I think vampires are probably, the, 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 as far as the uh, storytelling and that, the mo characters that you can really play with and change things around and fans will accept it. You know, because they want to see, okay, well, what are these vampires like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the rules seem to change from one mm -hmm. author to another. And as, yeah. I guess as long as they're consistent, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you yep. know, it's interesting in, in Stoker's original Dracula, uh, there are some limitations to Dracula's power at night, but, mm -hmm. um, or uh, power during the daytime. Uh, but the sunlight doesn't really kill him like we would come to think of in in the films of mm -hmm. the 1920s, 30s, and on to the current day. Mm -hmm. uh, so there have there have been some changes to Dracula lore, even from you know the grandfather of it all, Bram Stoker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a great scene in um, oh god, which which Hammer film, but the the vampires are out it's a very it's an overcast day and but then all of a sudden it starts getting a little brighter and the, the they get back in a carriage and the one vampire says to the drive you know drive 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 like the devil you know and they go <laughs> and they go you know flying away um and uh you know so yes there's things like that I, one of the vampires in my novel she's out late late afternoon and she is thinking she needs to get back inside because she's you know she's not ready to feed yet and yeah. she, you know wants to go back in wait till night then come back out and, and feed so you've already established yourself with uh, successful plays you mentioned your theater you do the um, the script for uh, Carmilla's Kiss. Mm -hmm. So you achieve success on these levels, but then you come to the decision to write a novel mm -hmm. and Blood Ending, a vampire novel. This is your first full-length book. So how did you come to make that transition from playwriting to writing a book? I will tell you. I, um, I did, uh, when I had the Edgar Allan Poe Theater, I did a production uh, called The Brides of Dracula. And actually, it was going to be a trilogy, uh, three plays. And The Brides of Dracula was pretty much taken from the Stoker novel, only I focused on, you know, three female vampires. And uh, then the next season, I did, uh, you know, a follow-up sequel where the the women were much more in power, and this was taking place in the 30s and 40s. So I was, wanted to show how they pro were progressing through time, or through decades. And then we never got around to the third piece just because I couldn't keep the theater going for financial reasons. But I had a third script pretty much written, 
and I had stacks of notes, background stories, all kinds of stuff. And I was going through, this is about 10 years ago, I was going through all my files because I, from time to time, go through and see, you know, if there's things I should get rid of or things I should look at. And I pulled out these folders just filled with all of this, my notes and things from these plays. And I put them all together. And I, I mean, gosh, there were like hundreds and hundreds of them and little notes and full page characterizations. And uh, I thought all of this stuff that actually never really got used in any of the plays other than background for the actors, right? So that got the wheels turning. And um, I started, you know, I put the plays together in order and then I put all the notes in between the pages. And, and I was gonna do like a Brides of Dracula. And then I thought, well, I don't wanna keep aping Bram Stoker. And there's so many Dracula adaptations and novels based on the Dracula character. So I came up with, uh, and and now also I realized to tell the story that I wanted to tell, I was gonna have to keep making all these changes to Bram Stoker's characters. And I thought, well, that's not very respectful um, hmm. to the you know source material. Um, so I came up with, you know, Anton Severinescu, who's the, the, the vampire in uh, Blood Ending. And he still has the three women, but they're called Trinity. And um, that just then, boy, okay, then I, because I didn't have those restraints of trying to respect Stoker's characters, but at the same time, mess with them. Um, so I came up with my own, you know, my own uh, vampire women and my own vampire. Yeah, so like I said, I, you know, I still have three female vampires, but they're no longer like the brides of Dracula or these unnamed uh, females that seem to always be hanging around. I mean, they became very, very important characters. Um, and there was, you know, then I brought in the character, the alchemist character, who's a becomes a vampire killer, who was originally a friend of Severin's. And I brought in uh, Justine, who's the tragic bride. I mean, she's like, God, the, the saddest. She was a hard character to write because I knew things were going to have to happen to her and you were not going to be good things. And, you know, then taking them all through the decades from the 20s to the 30s, you know, through World War II, through Dresden, uh, and then bringing them into uh, 1950s uh, New York, the streets of New York. So it was a great, I mean, it was just incredibly liberating and, and so much fun to research different decades and how I could fit them into, you know, the, the cabaret scene in Berlin in the 20s and how I could, you know, have them be involved with, you know, uh, the war, you know, being in Dresden during the bombing and, and things like that. The thing was that 
I thought, well, if these characters are living through all this and these things are going on, and while these things are going on in history, for humans, we're going through a lot of changes. Things are happening to us. The world is changing. So if it's changing for us, then why would it not be changing for preternatural characters? What would happen to them if they were in Dresden when the bombs go off or, you know, 20 years, 30 years into the future? Um, one of the characters, she comments that, you know, people are living longer and people, you know, aren't dying of things that they had died because of science. So then I brought in aspects of science mixing with magic. So if the state of humanity and the world is changing, then why not yeah. the state of magic? And then that gave me another freedom because then I could make them, you know, the uh, one, you know, there, there's an instance in the book where they just want the, the one vampire woman discovers that crucifixes don't have an effect on them anymore. It's like, oh, what? You know, and little things like that changing and they're, you're like, okay, what's happening? I mean, there, there was, you know, all the cliches have kept them going, but now those cliches aren't there and they're facing a new world and changes in magic. No, the, the book ranges really from the 1850s through the 1940s. And it goes back and forth into these different time periods. Mm -hmm. So it's not completely chronological, but still pretty easy to follow. And then the final chapter actually ends mm -hmm. more modern day in 2007. So there's, there's a large right. range yeah. of time that yeah. is covered here. I want to talk more, Michael, about the characters. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not the Vampire Diaries. This mm -hmm. is not Twilight. These are all pretty much tough, ruthless bloodthirsty characters almost mm -hmm. everyone really mm -hmm. yeah yes yes they um they they'll rip your throat out as soon as look at you i mean they're uh they are creatures of the night quote unquote i mean there's no uh none of them are you know the only one who kind of pines away for her last humanity is Justine. And that's towards the end of her existence. But the other ones, are, they're fine. I mean, they talk about killing, like it's like, well, we got to go out and, you know, uh, uh, Anastasia, you know, she goes through a period where she really likes those uh, newsboys that are out on the streets, you know, of England, you know, calling out, you know, the newsies, those, you know, she kind of takes a fancy to them at some point. But yes, they are bloodthirsty. They, you know, that's what they need to do to exist. And by God, they're gonna yeah. exist. There really yeah. isn't a wholly sympathetic character. But if I were to ask you to say, who is the most sympathetic character of this lot? Who do you think it might be? Mm -hmm. Okay. It would be Justine. Um, she was a, 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 I mean, when Severin turns her, she was only 17. Um, she falls in love with this 
romantic figure, this, uh, you know, count from, uh, you know, Romania who comes to, he comes to France, he's thinking that he needs to enter human society in some way and start spreading his wealth around. So he's invited to this party, this grand party given by a big financier, and um, he meets Justine and for the first time in his existence mm -hmm. falls in love and he brings her back to the castle where the Trinity are and of course they are outraged that he has brought this woman back to uh, be their quote-unquote queen who wants to build a new society and she's just i mean she's just thrown into this world and the trinity you know without get, giving a whole lot away i mean they do things to her um and she eventually hooks up with uh pretorius biderbeck the uh, alchemist and she joins him in his vampire killing ways even though she is a vampire i mean she's just so confused and she keeps getting torn in different directions and and her mind is 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 flipping one way and then it's flipping another and and eventually she does what she does to herself at the end and there's also a moment where she's forced to kill a small creature, uh, animal, in order, you know, to, to live. And it just decimates her that she has to do this. Because there's still, out of all of them, there's still a little humanity left in her because she, mm. she hasn't been a vampire very long. And um, vampires, for the most part, especially the Trinity, have not been very nice to her. And, uh, you know, she loses Severin or thinks she does. She's, she gets so manipulated that, like I said, at some point, she's just not sure left from right, up from down, who she believes, who she doesn't believe. And so because of what happens to her and what she does to herself at the end of the, of the novel, the end of the story, to me makes her, you know, an incredibly yeah. tragic character. One thing we should emphasize that the book, and I enjoyed it, and there's a lot of things going on here, but it's not a children's book. It's not a young adult book. This is clearly a book for an adult audience. Uh, yeah. There's violence. It's pretty graphic. There's mm -hmm. quite a bit of sexuality uh, in the story. Talk about the decision to, to go in that direction. Um, well, given their heightened state of existence, um, and I, I mean, I wanted there to be an element of sexuality. I didn't want it to be pornographic. So it was very, I hope, creative and very, uh, a little different, a little steamy but not uh again i keep going back to uh because when i first when i read the first couple drafts and i was like well this is kind of you know 
like a porno scene from a porno movie and um i didn't want that i that like that that no that's too mm -hmm. easy and i wanted the female readers to to identify with the female characters when they were having their sexual counters and obviously and you've read it so not all of them are it's not just you know missionary wham bam thank you ma'am i mean i hope that i had some creative stuff going on there with these characters and how they relate to sex and uh but i wanted to uh make sure that the, the female readers and i had you know I, I mean my wife read it i had a couple uh, friends of mine read it and I asked them, I said, how does this play? Does this make sense? Would she react this way if he did this to her? And do you think this is too, is it taking away from the story? I mean, because if it is, boom, it's getting taken out. And they all was like, no, they said, this is great. I mean, none of the, the, the women who had read it before I, you know, before it was finally up going to print felt that the sexual aspects of the book were uh, convoluted or they didn't feel that it they felt that it made sense in the story that these you know, characters were doing what they did and the way that they did it and that it was erotic and again not pornographic some of the scenes are very erotic some of the scenes are just like whoa Okay, um, tatering on the, you know, BDSM aspect. Uh, and I just, you know, I mean, pornography is so easy to write and so easy to put into a book. And yeah, it's just, definitely, you know, it's definitely not that. It's restricted. I wanted yes. to Yeah. Michael, right. I wanted to ask you yeah. another question, yeah. um, and it's maybe a frivolous question, but I'm, I'm always interested in names, names of characters. And you have some wonderful names that you've already mentioned, mm -hmm. Anton Severinescu, uh, Praetorius yeah. Biderbeck, mm -hmm. Claramond, right. who I guess is the leader of the Trinity mm -hmm. in many ways. Yeah. I'm curious about the Praetorius Biderbeck. Right. Yeah. Did, did that, did Praetorius come from yeah. Bride of Frankenstein, the character there? Yeah. Absolutely, and yes. Biderbeck, is that from the uh, Fibes movie? Yes. Was the second one. Fives, yes, yes. Ding, ding, ding. The character played by yeah, Robert Corey. Uh, yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. Corey, yes. Great character. Great character. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I wrote that. Well, I liked, I did. Originally, the last name was Pretorius. And I thought, well, you know, this is such a great name to, you know, to have him being referred to as opposed to you know Wilhelm Pretorius or whatever um so I made that the first name and I always remember there's that scene where you've seen the second fives you know when he rises up and he goes to uh I forget what it was the, the box he was opening for, for the the liquid that yeah. would make him you know for eternal life and he throws it open and he looks in and it's empty and he goes bite <laughs> her back I just always loved that moment and that the way he said that name. So then I put those two, 
names together because I got well. Those are two great, great sources: uh, Bride of Frankenstein and the Doctor Fives yeah. movies with Vincent Price. So working them in is definitely a yeah. good thing. Michael, what's the best way for people to acquire the book? I know it is available at Amazon.com. A lot of people have given it very favorable reviews. Any right. other places that people can purchase the book? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah it's a, you can get you know, either the Kindle or the paperback right at Amazon. Um, also on Goodreads. And there's some Goodreads.com. And some great reviews there as well. I'm just so excited by the way people have been reacting to this book. But yeah, goodreads.com and Barnes and Noble and blackrosewriting.com, the, the publisher, Black Rose Writing. Uh, the book is also available Very good. on their so website. Amazon, blackrosewriting.com, Goodreads, three excellent sources to pick up the book. Final question for yeah, Michael. Yeah. Uh, what's your next project? Are you going to do another vampire novel? Going to get back into writing plays? What's up for you next? Um, the novel that I'm working on right now, in fact, I just finished the first full, complete working draft, which I have um, slowly handing over to my wife, Pamela, to, to read and edit for me. Um, she's very good at it. And uh, it's a ghost story called Within These Tainted Walls. And um, it's what happens when a curse goes wrong, when the ghosts, when things, and it's not a comedy, I mean, it's, but things go wrong. Um, and they have very disastrous results what happens not only to the the two ghosts in the house but to the uh the weatherly family who have been cursed and it's just uh, uh that's the best way yeah. i mean it's it's a ghost story <laughs> yeah you know and it's not a comedy even though it sounds like when you say oh you know what happens when a curse mm -hmm. goes wrong? Well, what happens? You know, um, things can get, you know, pretty, pretty awful. The book. So, yeah, hopefully it'll be out. I mean, like I said, I've finished the first draft. Now I've got, you know, Pamela will look at it. I have a couple alpha readers who will look at it. Then I'll sit back down again and start taking all their ideas and suggestions and questions. It's like, Oh yeah, I guess this doesn't make sense. You know, the whole routine of rewriting and re rediscovering the, the story. book is Blood Ending, a vampire novel. A fellow author, John Vance, is among those who have praised it. He says, frightfully stimulating, sensually intriguing, and most vampiristically delightful. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for coming on. We're glad to hear the book is doing well and continued success thank with you. it. Thank you. Again, our guest Thank has been Michael so McGovern. Blood Ending, a vampire novel, is his book, available at Amazon.com and BlackRoseWriting.com. We've got uh, more coming up on this uh, vampire-themed uh, program. Tracy is going to join us in a moment, and we're going to talk about the film that came out in August of 2023, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. That'll be coming up. 
please stay with us on the Ghostly Gallery podcast. We continue on this vampire special edition of the Ghostly Gallery podcast. Bruce Markison back with you, joined by my co-host Tracy Asteria. We will be talking about the film that came out in August of this year, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Tracy, how have you been? I've been really well, thank you. How's everything going with you? Things are going well here in upstate New York. We're heading into uh, the fall season, starting to think about Halloween, starting to see the stores with Halloween decorations and some of the major stores that sell all sorts of Halloween memorabilia. So that's kind of a nice thing to see. We're yes. not that far away from the big the big holiday. No, uh, that's what, right. It's yeah. season. <laughs> so Tracy wanted to talk about this film that had really come with a lot of anticipation, uh, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Uh, it's directed by a Norwegian director, Andre Overdahl. Uh, he has done some, some excellent films. He did The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Uh, he also did Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Uh, he's done some other films, but I think those two are probably the two horror films that have drawn the most attention. And now, of course, the last voyage of the Demeter. Uh, wanted to give you a chance to talk about it, and I will, of course, talk about it too. Uh, I had a chance to watch it just a few nights ago. Mm -hmm. It, um, I thought, was a very visually impressive film, and really came across liking it. There are some interesting things about it. One of the things that you might notice when watching the movie is you don't actually see Dracula, who is in a beast-like form. You don't see him until well into the movie. It's the 43-minute mark when he first appears. And even then, you don't really get a full-body look at him. Uh, that full-body first look doesn't really come until about eight more minutes at the 51-minute mark. So it is somewhat late in the film that he appears. But that's not necessarily inconsistent with horror history. You know, you think about the original Frankenstein from 1931. The Frankenstein monster does not appear until a good portion of the film has gone by. Uh, and right. if you look at uh, the Christopher Lee films that he did for Hammer Studios, um, in many of those films, uh, he either appears briefly, uh, sometimes doesn't appear until you know, a quarter way through the film or a third way through the film. I think it's actually very effective here. Uh, when he does appear, uh, he's pretty shocking the way that he looks. It's nothing like Christopher Lee or Bela Lugosi. This is very much an animal-like creature, a beast. Uh, but he does speak. And in fact, his first words during his real first big attack on the ship uh, one of the crew members uh, sees Dracula and is begging for mercy and says, please, no. 
And then Dracula's first words in a very mocking way are, please no. So he's mocking the ship's crewman as he is about to attack and kill him. And then after he says those words, he gives us a bit of a smile, kind of a, a strange look to see a beast-like figure with a smile like that. But I thought it was a very effective scene, very powerful. I thought that was handled really well. Yes. For those who yeah. have not seen the movie, the presentation of Dracula is very reminiscent of the character of Count Orlok from the Nosferatu films, the original, the silent film, 1923, and then the excellent makeup, or uh, uh, not makeup, but uh, remake, I should say, uh, of the original Nosferatu, came out in 1979 with Klaus Kinski as Count Orlok. Uh, so this Dracula looks like that, also like the character of Barlow in the Salem's Lot film series, also from 1979. So it's very striking. It is, it's not a Dracula that we're really used to seeing, but I think it's really impactful. And I think, you know, he's such, you know, he is such a ferocious character that we don't really need him to be on screen that often or that much to have an impact on the movie. So I actually thought that was very effectively done. Some people I think might have liked to see more of Dracula. I thought it worked here. What did you think? Yes. I it was a I thought it was a really good movie. I was um I really didn't know what to expect from this movie. Um the trailers to me were amazing the ones that i had saw online so i was really looking forward to it but um i think you're right not to not to see the dracula character until at least three quarters of the way through the movie was very suspenseful and it really did build it up for me it's it's all about the suspense and and the unknown for me but i really did enjoy it i was not expecting the way the way he looked to be the way that he looked, mm -hmm. to be honest. <laughs> Would you have preferred to see Dracula as a, a, a human, a man, if you will? For this one here, I, I think that's what I was expecting to see. I think I was expecting to see kind of a more vicious Bella Lugosi type character. I, I wasn't really, I don't think I've really prepared myself to see the beast that Dracula was portrayed in, in you are right. Now that I think about it, it resembles kind of like Salem's lot and Nosferatu. Yeah. And I never really kind of pieced those together, but I, I really was not quite expecting just such the big visual image of Dracula. I guess another way that they could have approached it here, they, they could have had Dracula's appearance evolve. As he takes on more victims, he starts to look more human-like. Uh, that's <laughs> something that we've seen in other Dracula productions. They could have done that, but they kept him as a creature pretty consistent in appearance throughout. But I thought that was very powerful. Let's talk, Tracy, about yeah. some of the individual actors and actresses that appeared. Uh, let's begin with Corey Hawkins. Uh, he is the heroic protagonist, Clemens. Uh, mm -hmm. He has to fight racism initially as he tries to get a job aboard the ship. You know, we see him uh, in Romania 
trying to get some work, uh, but he is basically rejected because of the color of his skin. Even when he is accepted as one of the crewmen, he faces continuing racism from some of the other crewmen, not the captain of the ship, but the other crewmen. But then ultimately he has to fight what turns out to be an even more dangerous enemy, and that, of course, is Dracula himself. I thought Hawkins was terrific. I, I was not really that familiar with him going into this film. I thought he presented a very likable character, uh, very heroic, but at the same time with some vulnerabilities. At first, he's a little bit skeptical about this monstrous character that he's being told about by the young stowaway. Uh, but then as time goes on and more evidence is presented to him, yeah, he starts to come around and then eventually he sees the creature and becomes a full believer. Uh, I thought Hawkins was great. I I'd love to see him in, in other films, uh, but I, I thought as a lead actor, he, uh, he hit the spot here. Yeah, I thought he had a wonderful performance. This, I believe, is the first time I've ever seen him in anything it, it's the first time i've actually ever heard of the actor but he, he was excellent and just very i i found he was very mild-mannered and especially like during the beginning and i don't want to give a whole lot away but just very mild-mannered when it came to trying to get a job on the ship and just throughout his time on the ship but it was just those little things when he had to be a little bit more forceful he just he really portrayed it really well and i think he exhibited a lot of compassion for the situation that was going on too i just i i was really impressed i thought he was excellent yeah he was terrific here did, did a very good job uh, another good performer is uh, liam cunningham an older actor he plays the narrator and also captain elliot uh he's he's got that that deep, rich voice makes him perfect as the narrator. And as Captain Elliot, he has a very calm and reasoned approach um, at one point when it's obvious that there's some sort of an evil force on the ship. He's telling everybody to take precautions. You know, he's, he's showing concern for his crewmen, uh, for the young uh, stowaway that is on the, uh, the ship as well. Uh, so I thought he delivered nicely, too. Yes, I think he did too. He was, it was a very commanding performance as the captain. And I, I also feel too that his whole look, whether it was like the makeup or the costume, he really suited the part well as, as the captain. And I was really impressed. And towards the end of the movie, I kind of developed some sympathy for what he was going through as well. And I think it's just, the like for a horror movie, the likableness of the characters that they chose for all of these roles. Yeah, you know, sometimes I've seen horror movies where every character is detestable, even if they're victims. Yeah, And even though, yeah, you're sorry <laughs> to see them get killed by a monster or by the killer, whomever it is, you don't have as much sympathy as you really would like to. Uh, and And all these, for the most part, the characters pretty likable. Um, one of the younger performers is uh, Ashling Franchosi. She plays the stowaway Anna, uh, and she is really the one that provides a link to Dracula because 
she is found in a very bad condition in the, the hold of the ship in kind of a hidden area. She has suffered some sort of a bite, has wounds, is almost near death, but she's able to recover. And then she is able to start to tell the story of who this evil force might be. And this, is, this has a connection to her native Romania. Uh, she talks about how this character of Dracula lives in a castle and that her house or her home was basically in the shadow of the castle and this monstrous figure. And at first, the other characters, including Clemens, uh, played by Corey Hawkins, are a little skeptical, but eventually her story uh, starts to make sense. Uh, and I thought she was uh, really good here. Uh, again, uh, a younger actor uh, who has, has done some other films and has received critical acclaim. And having seen her here, I can see why. Yes, no, she delivered an excellent performance as well. And I really like the way that her story was portrayed because she didn't give it all to you at the exact same time. It was just kind of trickled out throughout the entire movie. And by the end, once you heard her entire story, again, it's your heart goes right out to that character for everything that she's been through before she managed to get on board the ship. And even afterwards at the ending, that the ending, not to give it away again, but it, it was quite sad for for that piece. And again, she she did an excellent job. And it was the first time I've ever seen him, her in a role as well. So I'll have to actually look at some of her past acting history because she she really was excellent. Another actor who I was a little more familiar with going in is David Desmalchin, who is uh, a very distinctive looking actor. He plays the captain's assistant, Wojciech, uh, he did a couple of guest appearances in the Gotham TV series. Uh, he's been in some of the Batman movies, including The Dark Knight. He's one of those guys who has a look where you think right off the bat, this guy is dark and sinister and there's something wrong with him. But I've also seen him play sympathetic roles where he's very vulnerable. Here he's a little bit down the middle. Uh, he shows some flaws, but he is also loyal to Captain Elliot. He is his number one assistant on the ship, the Demeter. Uh, so I thought he gave a, a pretty nicely rounded uh, performance. Um, what do you think of Dest Melchin? He's, um, he's just kind of an interesting looking guy. He, he looks like no one else. No, that's, you're exactly right. And I'm actually, I'm looking at a picture of all of the cast right now, just to make sure I know which one each actor played and and you are right and again he a great performance a really strong member of the crew and um yeah i did not realize he was in some of those batman movies so that's pretty interesting yeah for those who haven't seen the film and i encourage you to do so i i think i'm a little more gung-ho on it than tracy is but i really liked it i enjoyed it uh, a little slow at first but it picks up fairly quickly it's beautifully shot, very well edited. I also thought it was well lit, even though most of the scenes are at night or in the, you know, the darker areas of the ship down in the hold. Um, I read some online comments, people saying that they had trouble seeing what was going on. I don't know if it was presented differently in theater, but 
I watched it on um, Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. I thought the lighting was very good. I mean, sometimes I have problems with films that are almost exclusively nighttime films, but I thought the lighting was was very good here. I could see the characters. I could see what was happening. I was I was never struggling to visually understand what was going on. How about you? Did did you have any problem with the lighting or did you think it was good too? Oh, that's interesting that you say that, Bruce. I did have issues kind of with the lighting. Like I found it was a very dark, like a very dark movie overall. Um, and it, I found it was kind of difficult to, to make out some of the scenes. But when you first see Dracula, like it would have been an awesome thing to see in theaters, I think. And I did not see it in theater. I, I saw it online. But maybe the theater might have made a difference. I'm not sure. But I did find the overall image was quite dark. Okay. But the really important scenes, there it seemed to be light enough to see. Like they did a, a really good job with the lighting when it was the really important scenes. Right. If you know what I mean. Yeah. But it it was strange. And now that you mention it, like I didn't hear a lot about different people having problems with the lighting, but that's, that's interesting. Maybe my television has a different contrast. I don't know what it is, (laughs) but I I was able to see pretty much the entire film. Well, one thing, you know, that I, that I do now, and I didn't do this really before streaming. I have a lot of trouble hearing dialogue, uh, especially when there are foreign accents involved Mm -hmm. and even sometimes British accents even though it's essentially the same language. So I almost always watch movies when I'm streaming at home with captions. It drives my wife crazy. She hates it, but I, <laughs> I, I find it's helpful, especially if I'm watching something for the first time, if I'm watching something that has, uh, you know, shot in a, in a foreign country with accented actors and actresses. So in a theater, you're, I guess you're not really able to do that, but at home you can. And I find that's really helpful. And it was helpful for me here because I did have the captions on throughout. So that, right. that meant I had no difficulty at all with the dialogue. Do you do the same thing when you watch at home? No, I don't use the that that caption feature. But what I do, like I, I use earbuds, wireless earbuds, and they have kind of stereo sound. And it, I, uh, that's how I watch a lot of my, whether it's TV shows or movies, it just, it makes me feel like I'm in the theater. So I have like no problem with, with kind of interpreting the dialogue and stuff like that. I, it, but base, base headphones with the stereo, yeah. it's, that's, that's how I do that. And it was excellent. And I'll, I, and I'll be honest too, the jump factor with the earbuds is, uh, can be <laughs> yeah. a little bit wonky and scary sometimes. So you don't watch with other people in your family. You like to watch by yourself? Yes. My, my boys, they would be a little bit scared of any type of horror movie. They're more, more gamers. Yeah. <laughs> and they're a little bit younger, right? Yes, they are. Yeah. Well, that's understandable. I'm the only one in my household that, uh, can tolerate horror films or enjoys horror (laughs) films. So most of the time I'm watching these late at night. And then sometimes I'll have a family member come in. Sometimes my nephew who lives with us or my wife or daughter, they'll come down and they'll look at what's on the screen. They'll just shake their head and they'll walk into the kitchen. That typically is, (laughs) is the reaction uh, that I get. 
One other thing Tracy wanted to mention about this film, I thought the musical score was terrific. It was kind of reminiscent of an old-fashioned horror film. There was a lot of classical music. Uh, I thought that added a lot to the mood and the atmosphere. So I thought that really rounded out the production. Oh, absolutely. I thought it was it was lovely music. And and I just want to make a note too, the the some of the beginning scenes of this movie when they are out on the ocean, it, just beautifully captured footage, whether it was real footage or CGI, I'm not sure, but I just need to make particular note that it, it was beautiful. I thought it was stunning. Yeah, I agree. It was terrific. And if you can't tell if it's real or CGI, then even if it was CGI, it means it was done effectively. One thing we haven't exactly. talked about, Tracy, yet is the fact that it was a box office flop. Uh, it didn't last in the theater all that long. The first weekend turned out to be very poor, and it didn't really recover after that. You think about the reasons why. I have to think the timing of being in the theater at the same time as two blockbuster summer hits like Barbie and Oppenheimer, I think that was a huge factor. Maybe Universal Studios waited too long. They came out with the film in August. Maybe they should have came, come out with it in May, you know, Memorial Day weekend, or maybe June mm -hmm. to try to get a little bit of a head start against those big blockbuster films. That, I think, was certainly a factor. Do, do you agree, or do you think there was something else that just didn't hit with audiences here? I think the timing was probably not the best timing to bring out this this type of a movie maybe later on in the fall like maybe around this time might have been a little bit better yeah. or even earlier before oppenheimer and barbie for sure i think the other piece that might have turned like a few people away might have just been the length because it is two hours <clears throat> and a lot of like i find that a lot of people are really at that 90 minute mark for whatever reason hmm. and maybe that could have been a possibility just because it was just that touch too long to be sitting in a movie theater it, it's it's really hard to say i mean the length was okay for me i'm used to sitting through some long ones but um that could have been a factor for some people and i think it only stayed here um at the theater for maybe three weeks here in the new glasgow area it's it definitely didn't stay very long in theaters yeah it was about the same here uh, i remember one night i was i was thinking oh i've got a night where i don't have to do a, a tour i've got nothing going on i can go to the theater in oneonta which is about a half an hour from cooperstown and then i realized it wasn't even mm -hmm. playing there uh it was playing in utica about an hour and away i decided i didn't want to do that i've heard this theory and i want to get your thoughts on this tracy i've heard people say Maybe it just comes down to the belief or the feeling that people are tired of the character of Dracula on film. Do you think there's anything to that? Um, I don't, I don't, I want to say no, I don't think so. Only because there's different generations that keep, you know, showing their interest in, in the horror genre and being reintroduced to different things. So, you know, like, for example, my kids, they they don't really know anything about, you know, Frankenstein or Dracula or anything like that. So then there's going to be like these newer generations coming up and developing a love for the horror movies and Dracula and the Frankensteins of 
the past. They're just going to be new again. So I don't think it's people are tired of it. I think interests from everybody are just all over the place right now. And it just, it, it's an odd experience. The world is an odd place right now. Yeah. I think studios have to think about, do we do a theatrical release? You know, does it go straight to Netflix or some other streaming service? You know, we're seeing a, a streaming service like Tubi is doing a lot of original horror films, lower budget, not anything on the scale of the last voyage of the Demeter, but they've done mm-hmm. some interesting movies. Some are some are not that good, but others, uh, you know, you can see there's some creativity that's being used there. So I guess there are just so many different options in terms of, you know, does it go to theater? Does it go straight to video? Does it go straight to Netflix? And it's hard to know exactly what to do. I asked you whether you thought people are tired of the character of Dracula. You don't think that's the case. I I agree with you. I don't, I don't buy that theory that Dracula is passe, that uh, people are not interested. I, I, I think it's still very powerful uh, all these Mm -hmm. years after Bram Stoker's novel of 1897, after the Nosferatu film of 1922, Bela Lugosi's performance, 1931. I still think that people enjoy this character and and the adaptations of it Uh, so i don't think people are tired of it Um, maybe i'm just being old-fashioned maybe it's wishful (laughs) thinking i don't know but i think there's still uh, a little bit uh, of blood left in dracula if if you know what i mean one of the things about tracy uh the ending of the film and i don't want to give anything away here but it did allow for the survival of at least one character. We're not going to tell you who that is. And -hmm. I think it left open the possibility of a sequel, but the studio lost so much money on this film was very expensive. As we've mentioned, did not do well at the box office. I'm guessing there probably isn't going to be a sequel, even though I thought it was pretty clear that they left that Avenue open. Yes. I, I think they, you know, I know that again, I know they didn't do well at the box office, but I think given a little bit of time where they did leave that door, actually they left that door wide open for a sequel. It it would just take the whole Dracula story in a completely different direction. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if the original director and writers of this particular movie, whether they continued on with it or sold the rights to another group of people to even develop, you know, either a brief miniseries or something just to kind of pick up the story and put it on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that. I think maybe not maybe a movie, but maybe kind of like a little miniseries or something just, you know, 10 episodes, an hour long, you you just never know. But the possibility I think is there. Yeah, this could be the uh, Dracula version of Midnight Mass. Um, I think Ooh, yes. I think it I think it could be very uh, successful. And if, if they do bring back some of the characters, and if the director Overdahl, who's very talented, uh, if he's involved again, I'll certainly be happy to watch any kind of a sequel or any kind of a follow up. All right, we need to give um, we need to give our final assessment of the film. So, on my Ghostly Gallery Facebook page, I. I try to give a number of stars to films. Uh, one star is really bad. Two is below par. Two and a half stars is 
decent. Three is good. Three and a half, obviously, is better. Four is a classic. Five is a masterpiece. So I'm going to give this film, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, uh, three and a half stars. Uh, it is beautifully shot. It's a really well-made film. Overdahl took a lot of effort to put this together. The acting is terrific. Uh, I know there's some problems with predictability when you're dealing with a Dracula story. You kind of know how it's going to end. Uh, but in this case, there still was a little bit of a twist that maybe you didn't see coming. Uh, I, I thought this was really, really good. So I'm going to give it three and a half stars. How about you, Tracy? Nice. I'm I'm going to give it a three. Um, for I I mean I did enjoy the movie, um, but I I'm going to give it a three. Not quite as high up there as as your thoughts, but I did really enjoy it. I thought it was very interesting. It has really encouraged me to go back and read the Dracula novel with particular attention to this particular chapter that the movie is about mm -hmm. because it's been so long. And I think once I read that again and maybe come back to this movie, I might be able to bump that up a little bit higher. But overall, three stars for me. Oh, that's a good solid review. So Tracy goes with three stars. I give The Last Voyage of the Demeter three and a half stars. Um, I think we both would, would recommend it. My recommendation may be a little bit uh, stronger. I'm a little more in favor of it, but uh, it, it is worth the time. It is available on Amazon Prime Video and perhaps some other streaming services as well. And if you're willing to pay that rental fee, uh, which I was willing to do for the show, I was willing to make that sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. worth it. It was definitely worth it. I don't know if it would be worth the cost of the movie ticket and the concessions, yes. but definitely worth the cost of streaming in the comfort of your own Absolutely. Home. Well, Tracy, uh, we thank you for your thoughts on the movie. We appreciate your time as always. We also want to thank our guest who was with us during the first half of the program, Michael McGovern, author of the new vampire novel, Blood Endings. So we appreciate that. Uh, Tracy, good to uh, talk to you again. And um, we do appreciate your time. We'll, we'll talk in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you. We want to thank all of our listeners for joining us in this Museum of the Macabre. Please join us again for the next edition, the next time in the Ghostly Gallery.